So, welcome. Welcome to all. There's many familiar faces here, and it's very lovely to see you here again. Some of you who I don't know, I look forward to meeting you over these days. So, to start with some introductions, for those of you who don't, may not know us, uh, this is John. This is Akinchino. That leaves me. I'm Christina. And I'd also like to introduce to you Luis here. And Luis will be leading the yoga and some support during the retreat. And thank you for coming. So this evening, we just want to give you a little bit of an overview of the retreat. We won't keep you too long. Um, I know many of you travel quite some to get here. But to begin together, and I think it's very, for me when I come here, I always appreciate this sense of arriving in the beginning of a retreat. It's a little bit like an out-breath, isn't it? I know how much effort many of you put in to actually being able to take this time and to travel here. And often that's a very busy time. And then there's this moment when we actually arrive together. And it's a beginning. And I know for many of you who've been here before, this time of arriving often feels a little bit like a homecoming. You know, there's this sense of remembering, this sense of familiarity, um, not just to the building, but almost like a homecoming to the way in which this building many ways embodies the so many years of people practicing here being here in such a dedicated way, in stillness, in silence, in that commitment to really exploring what is possible for us as human beings. The wakefulness, the compassion, the kindness, the understanding, that kind of remembering, ah, this is what we're here for. Sometimes when the Buddha would begin instructions or giving a discourse, he would, he would sometimes use the words to encourage people, saying, disentangle from the world and establish yourself in mindfulness and solitude. I personally think that these are really helpful words for us to reflect on as we begin a retreat. What does it mean for us to disentangle from the world and establish ourselves in mindfulness and solitude? I think what we recognize that beginning a retreat involves much more than a kind of physical arrival. There's a whole psychological, emotional readjustment that needs to take place. It's a kind of reorientation a remembering what why we are here, and recognizing that just being here does not a retreat provide. What makes a retreat is truly 
hinging upon how we choose to be here and how we dedicate ourselves to be here. So I think it is a reflection perhaps you could just take on for this evening. What is it perhaps that you might really want to let go of or be asked to put down in order to be here most fully, most wholeheartedly? Now that will be different for many of us. It might be the habits of of busyness, of projects, of rearranging, of controlling. It might be the, the habits of leaning into the forward into the future or leaning backward into the past. It might be the habits of judgment and comparing. Would it be helpful for us to acknowledge this is something we might be able to put down? It might also be a question of what are we asked to cultivate in order to be here most wholeheartedly. Is it patience? Is it kindness? Is it compassion? Is it perseverance? Again, there is not a right answer. But I am as, I mean, I feel, I, I, I teach in a lot of different places, and I must say IMS provides some fairly conducive conditions to practice in. You may notice also in this room this year, there's a little bit of a difference. Um, hopefully a welcome difference for all of you. You don't need to sort of melt on your zafu. Um, I know centers in Europe that only ever heat the meditation room in winter. They never heat the rest of the building. Clearly, there's an encouragement then to use it more fully. But guess what? The only cool place here (laughs) is in this room, in the walking room. (laughs) You might want to take advantage of it. But the conditions here are pretty good, you know, not perfect. I don't know what your life is like, but in my life, I don't have cooks. I don't have people who do my shopping and my cleaning. I don't have people working behind the scenes dedicated to supporting me just to be able to practice. So there's a tremendous freedom, I think, in coming here. So I encourage you to take on that reflection. What is it that we might cultivate? What is it that we might let go of? that actually allows us to acknowledge that we are really a participant in cultivating a retreat, a retreat environment. Now, one part of that, as all of you are no doubt familiar with, is is the silence of a retreat. This, for me, is is a wonderful part. it's, It's such a, in a way, it's a transformative aspect of a retreat. Now, when we use the word silence, acknowledging, we often talk about noble silence. We don't talk about punitive silence. We don't talk about rejection of relationship or rejecting the value of communication. But we talk about noble silence, this commitment to solitude and to respecting the solitude of another. Now, recognize, 
recognizing that verbal silence is only one part of this. You probably notice that even when we commit not to talking to each other, there are plenty of conversations going on inwardly. But verbal silence is helpful. I personally find there is such a relief for just this little time in our life that you don't have to be somebody. You know, you don't have to present yourself. You don't have to be alert for the signs of acceptance and rejection. You don't have to perform. In a way, silence, I think, when understood most deeply, allows us to relax into just being with what is. But there's something else that happens in that. We're able to listen more deeply. We're able to listen to the world around us, but more importantly, we're able to listen more deeply to the life of our body, the life of our hearts, the life of our minds. Now, part of the silence, and I really want to say this and not jokingly, but really, really a strong encouragement to turn off and put down all your technology. I have a sense more and more in retreats that solitude and silence are becoming endangered species. That somehow we're losing the art of knowing how to be alone. And in being alone, knowing also how to be fully with others. Instead, we, f- we can feel this pressure always to be on call, always to be available, as if somehow we will miss something in life if we just step back into silence for a little while. So I really encourage you to turn off your phones, not even use them as alarms, because it's too tempting. If you find it too difficult, the office will be very, very happy to look after your phone, your, your iPad, whatever you bring with you. Sometimes this makes people feel quite vulnerable. Now, the only exception to this, I would say, if you do have people in your life, you know, elderly relatives, you know, or vulnerable people in your life who are really relying on you, then please make some conscious, intentional way of actually addressing that. Um, Uh, Otherwise, just put a message on your phone. You know, you're on retreat. You're on retreat. You you love them, but you're on retreat. And, And not to kid ourselves, you know, that, oh, I'll just check my messages once. You know, what you will find in a retreat, quite naturally, is that your life will follow you onto the cushion. Your life will follow you onto your walking path. Why would it not? but we don't need to invite more. There is already enough following us. We don't need to keep that that invitation going. And, you know, strangely, the world often really can do quite well without us for a week. Isn't that amazing? Just gets on with its business, you know, and we're knowing what we're not getting on with. In the silence, also in this aspect of silence, considering... You know, note writing, 
for example. And it's a very popular thing here at IMS, or, or more so in America, I have to say, than I've ever seen anywhere in the world. <laughs> we like to write notes. You know, we like, to, we like to comment. Now, sometimes it's very appropriate to write a note. You know, if there's something missing in your room, or, you know, you're struggling with something and you need to get in touch with us, please, 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 we welcome you and encourage you to write us a note. But, you know, you know, if you're writing a note critiquing the Dharma talk or, you know, um, you know helpful suggestions about what we might speak about, you know, uh, they're all very lovely and, and, of course, always appreciated. But maybe we pause for a moment before we write it and say, hmm, do I actually need to write this? And, of course, we would ask you never to write a note to another yogi. If there's something you need to take care of, please funnel it through us or through Marilyn. So, having said that, I hope you have a really wonderful and rich retreat here. I too wish to <coughs> welcome everybody. Um, unlike Christina, I know a few faces, but I don't know the vast majority of people here. And uh, like her, I hope to get to know you over this week. I want to just speak about something I'm really passionate about, which is really important. When we were talking this afternoon about how we were going to open this retreat and what we were going to um, talk about ourselves individually, I particularly opted for this, and I said, this is really, really important. This is the one I really want to talk about. Um, and it's a part of the Buddhist path, and it's part of retreats, which you've all heard. Everybody who's ever been on retreat will have heard them. And it's called Five Precepts. Um, but it's the ethical basis of what we do. It's the ethical basis of holding the whole retreat. So it's the container, actually. This is the container that actually holds this retreat and allows you to grow. Now, many of you will have come across a distinction that's made. Actually, it's made in slightly later Buddhism. It's not actually there in the text per se, in quite the organization that you're familiar with it. But it's this Sila Samadhi Panya. Sila is the prerequisite. It's the condition for all growth. So much so that this extremely famous uh, text that comes out in the 5th century called the Visuddhimagga um, actually says without Sila... Um, well, you might as well forget the other two. Yeah. Without sila as the groundwork of what we do, without the basis, without the platform, then actually the, the practices of samadhi, which cover all the meditation practices from concentration to the vipassana, and the development of panya, really matter very, very little. So this is the ground base, not just for, obviously, a retreat. As I say, it's the container for the retreat. But it's also the container for our lives. This is such an important dimension. This is for both here during this retreat, but when you go outside in your life, something to really, really reflect on. And these precepts um, are the minimal practice, in a sense, of sila that we can bring to investigate our lives of ethics and morality in our ordinary lives. They are not, and I really do try to make this clear to everybody, you know, both when I've taught here and when I've taught, when I teach in Europe and the UK, 
that these are not simply prescriptions. They're not things which say, don't do. You know, we're full of that. In West, we have lovely prescriptions. Um, you know, it's like taking the Ten Commandments, except we've halved them. We have five. <laughs> you know, we don't have the ten anymore. Um, so we've got a kind of reductionist prescription, and that's not really how it is. Popular books on Buddhism seem to reiterate this as well, endlessly, that they some kind of somehow come across as prescriptions because you'll get a list which says something like don't kill, don't steal, don't conduct sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't take drink and drugs. And that sounds very easy. It's actually quite a nice little list not to do. But it actually loses everything that's important in just having them listed in that way. It actually loses all the dynamics of what they're meant to do because these um, precepts are meant to help us to inquire into certain dimensions of our experience and our life. Whether we're here on retreat or whether we're just going about our business in work and our ordinary lives, these are meant to help us to inquire into, those, into our lives. So they're pretty important in the sense of they cover such a huge range of our experience in ordinary life. They cover such a huge range of our experience actually while we're here um, just on retreat. Some of them not quite so obviously and some of them really obviously. Now in their Pali formulation, in the language that was, you know, the language that was used to record the Buddha's words, these are actually much fuller than the ways that we get them, as I say, in popular books on Buddhism. Uh, they're not don't kill, don't steal, etc. They actually run something like this. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from, and then it will have the precept afterwards. So it's a rule of training. That's a very important dimension of it. It's not an absolutism. As I say, it's something to help us to inquire into our lives. As a default option, we might want to fall back on them as being a prescription, but that's not really the way they're intended to be used. That's not the way they're to, intended for us to use them in our lives. So if we take the first precept, the first precept is the precept to, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. You know, it's not just don't kill, it's actually harm. You know, many of us, I think probably the majority of us, everybody in this room would probably not want to willingly go out and kill something, but often we're engaged in relationships of harm, both to ourselves as living beings and to others. Let's not exclude ourselves. There's many, we have many ways, delightful, delicious ways of torturing ourselves. Yeah. Um, which don't actually need to be there in our lives. So this is including ourselves when we talk about harming living beings. It's obviously harming other beings around us in whatever ways um, that we engage in. And there are multifarious ways that we can harm living beings from obviously killing the flies, swatting the flies, swatting the mosquito, to you know, just engaging in something which is slightly malicious in our lives. So it's, it's, it's a rule which actually helps us to deeply engage with you know, relationships of harm, the sort of things that we're doing 
in ordinary life. And actually we can still bring with us on retreat. The second precept is the one about um, taking what is not offered, undertaking a ruling of training to take what is not offered or what is not freely given. And again, it's not simply don't steal. It's actually looking at that. What do we appropriate? What do we take? What do we take that isn't actually freely offered? And again, there's a vast range within our experience. I always, you know, I'm very aware when I'm teaching in universities, which is, you know, part of what I do, is actually I'm always advising students or warning students that plagiarism is an act of theft in many senses, taking again what is not offered. But taking what is not offered in our daily lives can range over a vast, you know, vast area of possibilities, such as, you know, taking the paperclip, using the telephone, taking the rubber bands and the pencils and the pens from work. You know, in themselves, they don't sound a lot, but they are, in, in a way, shaping the mind in a particular way. And this is why we refrain from doing them, refrain from engaging in anything of this sort, because they shape the mind in a particular way. And we are trying to shape it in another way. We're trying to direct it in a very, very particular way. Interesting, the third precept, which is uh, usually translated as uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, misses out an important dimension which is there in the Pali, which is I undertake a rule of training to refrain from sensual and sexual misconduct. Now, sensual is actually probably far easier to engage in in a retreat than sexual misconduct. I'm not saying it's impossible, but sensual misconduct is very much easier to engage in. I often feel, I mean, I get this impression, no matter where I teach retreats, I get the impression, actually, a lot of retreats for a lot of people are simply eating sessions interrupted by a few meditations. (laughs) You know, so when we start talking about sensual as well as sexual misconduct, then it really requires us to look at something as basic as our food intake and what, in a sense, that's a substitute for. What are we literally trying to fill ourselves up with? Why do we engage in it? So we can overindulge in that. In our ordinary lives, there are many, many, many ways of sensually overindulging, you know, from food to all the media opportunities that we have around us, you know, of you know, music and movies and all of these things that we can literally blot out with. So sexual and sensual misconduct are a very important dimension, but I think particularly to hear on retreat the sensual side of it. What are we doing? You know, we ask you, for example, to put away even reading on retreat because that becomes yet another distraction and sensory indulgence a lot of the time. Then we come to, I undertake a rule training to refrain from false speech. Now, often this is extended in some traditions into actually looking at all of the acts of speech which are not right speech. False speech obviously is, again, uh, the very basic, what I call popularist, simplistic understanding of it, of don't lie. But it means looking at all the acts of speech that we engage in, which, for example 
are in some senses not offering some degree of truth, not offering some degree of harmony in life. So it really looks, makes us look at all our acts of speech, for example, where we might be exaggerating, while we may, might be making our, you know, I don't know, our speech act just that little bit funnier, you know, to you know, kind, of, kind of dress it up in ways. Now, the one thing we know that even, and I think Christina just mentioned this a few minutes ago, that the one thing that we know, even when we're on the cushion, is we're always talking. You know, we never stop talking. Um, as one particular philosopher says, we, we're always talking. Um, we're talking when we're silent. We're talking when we're reading. We're talking when we're asleep. We're always talking. So actually, it's, uh, despite the fact there is the noble silence in retreat, it still means looking at our speech acts internally. What's going on? You know, are they false? Are they harsh? Are they divisive? And are we merely just chatting to ourselves? Yeah. It really does mean looking at all of that dimension of our experience. And finally, of course, there is the abstention or the rule of training to abstain from taking things which actually disturb or cloud the balance of the mind. Yeah. Now, one way of looking at this is the Buddha is merely a religious prude who says, you know, don't take things like drugs and you know, alcohol and all these things because, you know, actually I want to just stop you having fun. <laughs> now, that's not the case at all. Um, one of the reasons, actually, when I usually do this, when I have a flip chart or something or a whiteboard, is that I usually list all of these precepts, one above the other. And of course, the fifth one is right at the bottom. And one way of looking at um, why the abstention from taking things which cloud the balance of the mind or to refrain from them in this way is because under the influence of things that cloud the balance of the mind, you're more likely to commit all of the above. All of the other ones that you engage in. On a more serious note about that and this whole you know, fifth precept here is actually it's antithetical to what we're attempting to do in meditation practice and in Buddhist practice in general. One of the things we're engaging in in Buddhist practice and meditation practice is the act of clarifying the mind. Trying to get as close to what is going on as is possible without distortion, without fantasy, without all of the fragmentation, which is usually there just in an ordinary, what I call, unintoxicated mind. Now, actually, our intoxications are far greater, just ordinarily, even than the drink and the drugs, you know, or whatever the substances might be that you use to cloud your mind. So the intoxications are far greater that we might be engaged in. Um, so we're having to deal with those intoxications, just the natural ones that are arising from our kind of toxic behavior often in life and our toxic thought patterns that we're having to stand close to and get as clear about as possible. So actually to deliberately alter the balance of the mind and cloud the mind is actually going in completely the opposite direction of what we're attempting to do in practice. 
Now, these five rules cover all of our ethical behavior, and so they're worth reflecting on, they're worth thinking about, and they're worth really adhering to as holding the container for your retreat. I particularly emphasize the speech one because, as I say, we're always talking. So, again, enjoy your retreat and examine these precepts as a way of engaging with your moral ethical life as we are here for this week. I'm delighted to be here and uh, look forward to getting to know you a little better in the coming days. Um, I'm aware there are alternatives to Buddhist meditation retreats, so I appreciate your um, coming here and leaving all these alternatives out and uh, actually giving preference to this. So I know this is not easy and um, I um, look forward to deepen some of the wisdom, some of the uh, profound applicable uh, tools that uh, come from Buddhist teachings with you together in the coming days. Um, I've found that one aspect in meditation retreats was never really apparent to me in the beginning. I come from a very individualist uh, Central European background and um, I do not know how it is here but I would not be surprised if it is similar. The outlook on um, what we're doing here is probably an individualistic one. It's you know individual cushions, individual mats, um, minds trying to wrestle with hindrances and coming to uh, find their individual truth so one aspect that has always struck me in meditation retreats is how collective these are, that this is a collective experience, much more so than I had uh, decided it would be. Uh, they are collective by necessity. We are here with many people. These people move through our minds. They move through our field of vision. Uh, we may sense their moods, their vibrations. We may empathize or uh, reverberate with their pain. So I'd like you to broaden your notion of meditation beyond technique, beyond method, beyond what you yourself are doing with yourself when you sit on your cushion, that your notion of meditation expands to accommodate other beings. In fact, all of you. That we do this together. We create an atmosphere together and in this atmosphere we will do work that is um, deeply individual. At the same time, it hinges on a collective willingness to support an ambience, to create a situation of safety and respect. Um, I'd like to echo Christina's point about noble silence rather than disapproving silence, hostile silences. There are many forms of silence which I don't know how you have experienced that, but I have experienced forms of silence that have been distinctly less than noble. So I would like to encourage you to infuse your silences with um, benevolence, uh, warmth, and uh, welcoming quality of mind. One aspect we do on retreats, and this may be 
we, we don't generally admit that in our brochures, but we, we hinge, uh, we, we rely strongly on a principle called repetition. Yeah? And generally repetition doesn't really have a very good name. It's, it's, we, we like contrast and we like variation. So repetition does sound like boredom. And much of retreats, in fact, are ritualized forms of walking, sitting, breathing, eating. That's one of the tricks we do. We ritualize the most mundane activities. Now, routines and rituals, they both have something to do with repetition, but there is a substantial difference. Uh, a ritual is a repetition that is conducted with the utmost presence of mind. And I'd like you to acknowledge uh, or ponder the power that there is in repetition, in repeating something with greatest depth of presence of mind. Yeah. Willing repetition. Much of our lives are repetition. Yeah. We don't think that at 20. We may still try to get away at it at th with 30. Um, Shortly after, it becomes obvious that much of our life has to do with repetition. Finding reconciliation with the fact that things repeat themselves in our life and we bring a fresh mind to something apparently already known is a tr profound and transformative tool. So that's one of the things we, we practice. Our lives are going to catch up with us. When we meditate, one of the things we will find out is that our notions of meditation will be continually uh, disappointed. One of my biggest sufferings when I entered monast a monastery in my very early 20s was finding out that monasteries were not what I thought monasteries were about. The discrepancy between my concept of monastic experience and my actual monastic experience was a remarkable uh, suffering. Um, it has taken some time to actually agree to this. I wouldn't say welcome it, but just kind of teeth-grittingly agree to this consistent dissonance between how I conceive the world to be and meditation and Buddhism and monasteries and you could add on just about anything, and what actually takes place. Now, the capacity in which we can hold that dissonance will determine probably more about the degree of peace, wisdom, contentment you get out of this practice than anything else. Your willingness to hold that which is not as you expected it to be, to hold willingly and sensitively, that which takes place beyond your expectations, east of all your concepts of it. And that capacity will make you grow. If you want a kind of, in a nutshell, recommendation, what helps you grow most is strengthen that capacity. Yeah. So I'd like to humbly invite you to broaden your notion of what you're doing here. You know, um, Part of our practice is actually allowing in, into the meditative mind, what we try busily keeping out of our lives often. And we come to 
gradually acknowledge and invite that it catches up with us. Now I'd like to encourage you to meet that respectfully, curiously, kindly, even if it differs from your expectations, what a retreat is about or what meditation is supposed to be about, or even if it is um, not really um, congruent with your plans for yourself on this retreat. We all have a dimension of depth, and in that dimension of depth, uh, when we intend to open up to that dimension, we will meet things. Our lives will start to talk, talk in a deep, uh, deeper way, or maybe I should say speak to, in a deeper way. And let us welcome whatever comes up, whatever we meet, whatever we encounter. Let us welcome that respectfully, curiously, and gently, beyond technique, beyond method. So, I wish you a good retreat. Uh, thank you. Fifteen minutes. Sit. Good. Please take up a relaxed and upright posture. We'll be sitting for 15 minutes. big practice is the practice of arriving and that arriving entails letting go. It means shedding, it means disentangling, it means consciously acknowledging the here and now of present embodied experience and a willingness to move the focus of our attention and awareness into the states of body and mind right now, leaving behind families, friends, the situations we come from, leaving behind the impressions we have uh, gathered today, and putting down our expectations we may hold for ourselves or for this retreat simply acknowledging how this body feels right now. Acknowledging posture. Acknowledging the dimensions of sensate experience, touch, warmth and coolness, weight, textures and the difference 
some parts feeling more compact, more dense, other parts feeling lighter, maybe more open, maybe less contoured. Acknowledging like and dislike, acknowledging what is pleasant right now in this situation, maybe mildly pleasant or mildly unpleasant or dramatically unpleasant, acknowledging our cognitive life, thoughts, images, concepts, words, Some of them ordered, some of them just tumbling, mixed. And acknowledging also a space, uh, a mind ground which enables all these things to take place. There is a space in which all these th things can take place. Space that is uncorrupted that is not insulted by our thoughts, is capable of realizing what we feel, how this body feels. In a space we can gradually become aware of. In the midst of thoughts and sensation, in the midst of feeling tone, in the midst of the colorings of our mind, there is something still. In the midst of the movement of our breath, coming, going, a chest moving, a heart beating, an abdomen in its rhythm. In the midst of all that, there's something capable of profound quiet. Let us acknowledge this. And let us put for a few minutes, a few minutes, the focus of our attention on that possibility, on that open ground. The ground, the open ground in between the things of the mind, the things of the body. Simply breathing in, feeling that breath, and acknowledging the stillness in the movement, in between the thoughts, underneath our emotions, underneath our judgments, perceptions, comments. Breathing in, feeling the breath, acknowledging the sensation, and sensing that stillness that underpins all the activity of mind.
So we begin. Um, really encourage you to take care of any unfinished business this evening so that tomorrow we really can, as much as we're able, to have a really fully present day um, welcoming, addressing, meeting what is. Now, tomorrow morning we don't have a scheduled sitting before breakfast. As you know, the hall is never locked. If you are up and awake, please feel free to come and sit. Otherwise, uh, the wake-up bell will go for breakfast. If the wake-up bell ringer, please feel free to be quite enthusiastic. It is actually your job to disturb people rather than not disturb people. I would encourage you, um, offer yourself the gift of letting go of busyness and hurry. You can really from this evening just begin to really relax a little, slow down a little, be more embodied, more present within your body, as you move through the building, as you go to breakfast, really beginning to forge that connection with the body, not just relying on formal sitting periods or formal walking periods, but what does it mean to inhabit our bodies? And to do that, it is helpful to, to cultivate that attitude of being present, of listening, of beginning to slow down a little, we're not talking about tortoise walking here, um, but just letting go of being in a hurry. After the uh, work period, <clears throat> we'll meet together in here for a sitting period, and each morning in the retreat, we would like to offer a, a period of instructions during that sitting period. So I do hope that you rest as well as you can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.